When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. 80 years ago this week, Winston Spencer Churchill became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He did so after the previous Prime Minister lost support right across all parties in the House of Commons, Neville Chamberlain, and was forced to resign, ostensibly for his handling of the Norway campaign. The day Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, Adolf Hitler launched his massive assault on Western Europe, on France and the Low Countries. Within hours of the assault being launched, it was clear that Britain and France were up against a very different kind of challenge to the one they'd faced during the First World War. Fast-moving German armoured thrusts, a gigantic aerial bombardment, pounded defences, fast-moving German columns pushed at extraordinary speed all along the front, and in particular a gigantic undetected thrust through the Ardennes, through the hilly country of the Ardennes, prized open the back door to France and sliced the Allied armies in half. It was a catastrophe in the making. It was the grimmest first week of being a Prime Minister of any Prime Minister I can think of. Winston Churchill responded by making a series of speeches, a series of addresses in the House of Commons. They've gone down as some of the finest speeches in the history of the English language. It began eight years ago this week with the speech that's become known as the Blood, Toil, Tears and Sweat speech, outlining his determination to secure victory at all and any cost. And it went on, the speeches about the finest hour and the few and all that kind of thing. As the sun went on and the Battle of Britain progressed. I was lucky enough to be given access to the House of Commons. I stood on the spot that Churchill made those speeches 80 years ago. We got a documentary featuring those speeches and my film in the House of Commons coming out this week. That's available on History Hit TV. Remember, you go to History Hit TV, you get all the back episodes of this podcast, you get quizzes, you get live Zoom records like the one we had this week with historian Rutger Bregman, and you can join in on as a subscriber, and you also get wonderful history documentaries. If you want to go and check that out, watch the Churchill film, come and sit in on other wonderful historians as we record live podcasts, please go to historyhit.tv and use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then you get your first month for just one pound, euro or dollar, you can check it out. To go along with the launch of that film, we've gone back into the archive for this podcast. We've got an archive of hundreds and hundreds of podcasts stretching all the way back to 2015 when I was a lad. And this is with Andrew Roberts, he's Churchill's. 
best-known biographer. I went round to his house. He showed me lots of his Churchill memorabilia, and we talked about the career of one of the most remarkable, but in recent years, controversial statesmen in British history. Enjoy. I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. It must be you've written so many books about Churchill, everyone's written so many books about Churchill, do you think there's still more we can say about this man? Fortunately, actually, yes, there is. Since the last major biography of him, there have been 41 sets of papers that have been deposited at the Churchill Archives in Cambridge, including really important things like his daughter's 1940 diary, Mary Soames's diary from 1940, which I think which was wonderful. Um, we've, the Her Majesty the Queen has allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to read her father's diaries. And he um, had lunch with Churchill every Tuesday of the war, and they talked completely openly. The King trusted uh, Churchill implicitly. He knew that he was one of the only people um, in public life who didn't want his job. <laughs> he was a... Um, he trusted him with the ultra-secret, for example, and so, um, so he was, uh, was very open to him, and luckily the King then went and wrote that day, wrote down what Churchill had said, so there are new stories, new jokes, new anecdotes. There have been 45 speeches of Churchill's that um, have been discovered by researchers that aren't in the collected volumes um, that were brought together by Robert Rhodes James, so there too I've been able to quote from speeches of Churchill that nobody uh, had, um, had quoted from in the, any previous biography. And we've also got the Meisky diaries, the diaries of Ivan Meisky, who was the Soviet ambassador for, to London from 1932 to 1943. And so, um, and he saw a lot of Churchill, especially in the key moments of the war in 1940 and 41, and, uh, and wrote down everything Churchill said as well. So all in all, um, I don't think that necessarily uh, it's going to be the case in 10 years' time, for example, because these are key, places, key uh, areas and sources which have now slipped into place. But um, there is something new to say about Churchill on pretty much every page of my book. What, what, do, you, what, do, what are you proudest of in terms of, uh, in terms of changing our, our perception of, of, of Churchill? I mean, what do you think, what, what does this biography really, what do these, all these new sources really add? What they add really is to um, go back to what an extraordinary emotional man he was. Um, one thinks of him as, uh, as being probably more emotional than any of the other contemporary prime, prime ministers or indeed politicians of the day. He was driven by his emotions. He burst into tears 50 times during the war. Now imagine today if uh, Mrs May were to burst into tears, she has every right to, I hasten to add, but if, if she burst into tears in the House of Commons while making a speech, it would be something that would uh, be rather sort of unsettling to everybody. Churchill was a romantic uh, sort of 18th century figure trapped in a Victorian aristocrat's um, body. Uh, so um, so I, I try to concentrate on that aspect of him. Um, another thing that the sources uh, bring out is quite how frustrated and irritated he was um, 
in the early parts of the Second World War about the Americans. This is something, of course, that he couldn't say in public, but which um, you get from the King's diaries in particular very strongly that he couldn't believe that the Americans were taking so long to get into the war. And ultimately, of course, it took Hitler to uh, declare war on America rather than uh, the other way around. So, um, so that's a very powerful thing. Really, anything that's new about Churchill is in itself an exciting thing. And as I say, there's a lot. Does is, I mean, to what extent, the myth of Churchill is so powerful, and are we, are we seeing new, uh, 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 is what we're now seeing uh, allowing us to take a, a sort of a more objective view? I mean, do, 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 for example, on his leadership throughout the war, do, does, the, does the summer, does this extraordinary apotheosis in the summer of 1940 blind us to mistakes or, or other things l earlier or later in the war? I don't think it does. I think, um, I mean, of course he made mistakes. He made mistakes, terrible mistakes, all the way through his life. Um, but he learnt from them. As he said, I should have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. Uh, he learnt from the First World War, he learnt not to um, overbear the chiefs of staff. He never once overruled them in the whole of the Second World War. Um, he learnt uh, not necessarily to trust to experts. Um, that was partly as a result of the fact that the gold standard, which he went back onto in 1925, was a disaster, even though every expert had said, uh, said that he should do it. Um, he had this sense of um, a redemptive power, really, of, um, of being able to learn from his mistakes. Now, that's not to say he didn't continue to make mistakes in the Second World War, but they're far, far um, less important, it strikes me. It was wrong to have, uh, to have stood up for Greece and to have sent an army to Greece in 1941 because, of course, it had to um, evacuate a couple of months later. But nonetheless, he had um, very strong political reasons for doing it, and he, and he argued those through in the House of Commons. Historians now um, agree that, uh, that he shouldn't have done it. But he did it as a way... Uh, as he himself said, I will make um, mistakes, but but in um, in front of the enemy. He always uh, said that his own generals would be let off, and admirals would be let off if the mistakes they made were attacking ones. And with Churchill, they almost always were. That's why he never gave Percival in uh, Singapore. That's right. Whereas he did let off um, Admiral Cunningham over the uh, Dakar uh, business. Yeah. Uh why with the Second World War and Churchill, every time I go anywhere in this country and walk into any pub or any museum, they say, this is Winston Churchill's favourites by Winston Churchill particularly wanted this to happen, he particularly wanted that to happen. You don't hear that about David Lloyd George in the First World War. I mean, did, did Churchill wield an unprecedented degree of influence and power over the, over the British war effort? Or is it, has it just become a sort of... His leadership has become a, a convenient sort of catch-all for everything that was going on. Well, he made himself Minister of Defence, of course. This was the first thing he did when he became Prime Minister. So, and, and he reorganised the Chiefs of Staff Committee so that it uh, only met with the um, operations uh, committee of the cabinet um, with politicians. So uh, it was a, uh, a reorganization of Whitehall to give him power. But, but he was by no means a dictator of, of Britain during the Second World War. I mean, he, he couldn't get an operation past the chiefs of staff. He had to agree with them that uh, it needed to be undertaken. Um, you, the reason you don't get it in earlier wars, although you almost do a bit with Pitt the Younger in the Napoleonic Wars, um, is because 
in most of the wars, the generals uh, have been uh, allowed far too much power. We saw that in the First World War, the struggles between uh, Lloyd George and uh, Haig and, uh, and Robertson and the rest of them were titanic struggles, but ultimately it was the soldiers who, who won. Uh, that's not the case in the Second World War. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When in Churchill's, um, Churchill's later life, what did he, did he, did he, I mean, he was obviously very worried about, he promised that he would not preside over the, over the, Liquidation the, of the British Empire. Liquidation of the British Empire, which yeah. is sort of what happened on his watch, isn't it? No, it's not. He didn't give away any part of the British Empire in the second um, Indian summer premiership. Uh, he was under pressure to, but he very much knew that that was going to happen. Um, but India had been given away by the Labour government, by the Attlee government, in the immediate post-war period, and between 51 and 55, he didn't give away any part of the, uh, of the empire. But um, it, all, it all went away fairly swiftly after that, especially, of course, after the Suez uh, debacle. But, but, so, but I guess my point is that did he, uh, later in life, did he feel that confronting and defeating Hitler was his greatest, was, was an achievement worthy of, of, of enormous, you know, he, he looked back with enormous happiness and that, or did he feel strategically that the Britain that he, that he had left was actually diminished from, from the Britain that he had, had arrived into as a politician? Yes, absolutely the latter. He, um, he thought he had been a failure as a politician because of the way that the empire was, uh, um, was disintegrating and uh, because he had gone into politics, as he wrote to his mother in 1896, in order to um, 
uh, promote the interests of the British Empire in uh, abroad and, and obviously social reform at home. And he did do an enormous amount of social reform at home, but as far as the foreign policy was concerned, he considered himself to have been a failure. And he never patted himself back on the back particularly, not in speeches, not openly, about um, the Second World War. Of course, he wrote his six-volume history of the Second World War in which he was the central figure, um, and um, you know, intentionally so. But he actually himself, and he told his private secretaries this uh, in the um, post-war period, he thought that his career had been a failure because the, uh, the empire that he loved and that he had dedicated his life to was collapsing. What hope for the rest of us if Winston Churchill died feeling like a failure? <laughs> I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, we, we, uh, we all appreciate that he was one of the greatest men in history, but yet he himself didn't. Well, that's interesting. So uh, on what grounds um, do we say that he's one of the greatest men in history? Is, is it just this unique uh, identification and, 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 uh, and confrontation with Adolf Hitler and, and his evil brand of... Uh, of Nazism, or is it about his extraordinary Renaissance characteristics? It's certainly, certainly the latter. The great thing about Winston Churchill is that he is so much more than just 1940 and 41. He's the man who creates the welfare state. He's the man who has, um, who's an unbelievable believer in history. Uh, you know, he um, reads history, he writes history, uh, and then he makes history. He is somebody who um, has advanced the English language to wonderful, sublime uh, levels. He's somebody who reminds us that, um, that just sheer animal courage, but actually moral as well as physical courage, um, is, uh, is a good thing in a, in a politician, in a statesman. Uh, he's somebody who has so much more to give than just the victories of 1940 and, uh, or at least the survival, not so much the victories even, of 1940 and 41. And then you also, of course, have to look at uh, all of the work that he did with the Chiefs of Staff in creating British Grand Strategy for 1942, 43, 44 and, and the victory in 1945. You know, this is not just a man who made great speeches in the House of Commons on, um, in a 12-month period, by any means. We've, we've seen more recently Indian historians, other historians, reminding us of the, Churchill's involvement in things that now appear to be... Uh, you know, far less attractive. Mm. So imperialism and all that sort of stuff. Do you, you in the past have written books celebrating Napoleon, celebrating Churchill un, unashamedly? What, and yet, somebody demonstrating Churchill's views towards race or towards empire now would be would be unacceptable in modern it's political discourse. Yeah. So how do you, how does this how does that work? More than unacceptable, obscene. I mean, it would be absurd and obscene to believe that uh, white people were biologically superior to non-white people. But that is what the Darwinists took, or at least the neo-Darwinists took, to be a scientific fact back in those days, however absurd that might be today. Uh, people like Huxley believed that um, you, could, you could extend Darwinist principles to believe that one particular race of humans was superior to the other. So, so for example, Napoleon... Churchill, these great men, what does their greatness today, how should, why should we think of them as great? 
Oh, well, we see them as great, correctly, because of their extraordinary achievements. Napoleon dragged France into the uh, 19th century. He uh, brought about a, uh, a true transformation of French society. Churchill, um, as well, of course, as having won the Second World War, also did things that um, transformed British society for the better. And so um, that's, I think, what you're looking for in a, in a truly great person, somebody who has left granite-like alterations for the better in their own uh, cultures and worlds. Do you think, uh, do you think in 100 years' time we will still, Churchill's, Churchill's reputation will endure? I think Churchill's reputation will be higher in a hundred years' time than it is now because I think people will have um, got over the identity politics problems that they have with him. I don't think that uh, that's something that's going to last for another hundred years, frankly. Um, I think that people are going to be able to see everybody in their historical context. Um, it's a bit like criticising Oliver Cromwell for not supporting socialised medicine. No, of course he didn't. You have to see people in their own, uh, in their own um, uh, historical context all day or nothing. So I think, if anything, the, um, the capacity uh, of Churchill, the sort of sheer, um, as you mentioned, Renaissance figure that he was, will be something which will be celebrated by Britons for um, many hundreds of years. What is next? What is next for Andrew Roberts? If you've finished writing about Churchill, where do you go after Churchill? That's the trouble, yes, exactly. I do sometimes feel that if I'm run over by a bus this afternoon, it's not going to matter terribly much because I'll have done my, uh, my, uh, my best work. Um, but historians, um, as you'll know, uh, tend to get better as they get older. And so um, when you look actually at some of the historians who are writing at the moment who are in their 70s and 80s, uh, and, and turning out some of the best stuff they've ever written. Um, actually, uh, it's rather wonderful being in a um, profession which you can't retire from. You say getting hit by a bus, we should, the, the famous Churchill incident in New York. All, all of this, may, you would have had to find a completely different thing to write about if it had been for that. And actually, the, um, the scar that was left when he was hit by a car in December 1932 in... Uh, in uh, Fifth Avenue in New York, um, when and very nearly killed. I mean, of all the times that he nearly died, that was in the top three. Um, and um, and actually, you can see if you look at the front page of my book, it, you can see this vivid scar that goes right the way up the centre of his forehead. It's a it's a very powerful thing, and it used to go go red during arguments with the chiefs of staff when um, General Brooke would be sitting looking across the green table down in the cabinet war rooms, breaking pencils in half. Um, Churchill's scar would go a vivid red colour. And, we sh and bizarrely, Hitler was also hit by a car within months of that happening. Almost two of the extraordinary figures of the 20th century, almost both killed in automobile accidents. Um, but speaking of just on Allenbrook, you mentioned that recently people have said that Allenbrook's diary is evidence that Churchill was sort of deranged and, and, and uh, mentally declining during the war and actually was more of a hindrance than anything. I mean, obviously, you, you completely disagree with that. I completely <laughs> disagree with that. No, absolutely. And actually, no policy, no st strategy could have been adopted had it not been for the extraordinary creation 
heated tension between Churchill and uh, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Lord Allenbrook. And uh, the, the struggles between these two men are titanic. And when uh, Allenbrook attacks Churchill in his diary, which he very often does, uh, he, he's venting, he's letting off steam after a long day of, of struggle with uh, Churchill. But think about what that struggle actually ultimately created. It created the, uh, the Africa strategy, the Mediterranean strategy, the success at D-Day, uh, you know, crossing the Rhine, these great um, achievements, bringing the Americans into the overall British strategy. I mean, things that uh, are world-shattering and world-changing. And, um, and that, those came as a result of this creative tension. But nobody ever for a moment denies that there was a lot of tension involved. They're the Lennon and McCartney of, of They were strategic. indeed, they were. And look what they created ultimately. <laughs> Andrew Roberts, thank you very much. The book is called? The book is called Churchill Walking with Destiny. Good luck with it. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just before you go, a bit of a favour to ask. I totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money. Makes sense. But if you could just do me a favour, it's for free. Go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. If you give it a five-star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review, purge yourself, give it a glowing review. I'd really appreciate that. It's tough world out there. Law of the jungle out there. And uh, I need all the fire support I can get. So that will boost it up the charts. It's so tiresome. But if you could do it, I'd be very, very grateful. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.